So can you think of a time when you were somewhere and you were like, I am wasting my time here. Like, I would rather be a million other places than right here. I have got so many other things I could be doing or would like to be doing, but I gotta be sitting right here. One that pops in my mind, like a small example would be, I don't know if they still make you do this, but when I was in school, um, the teachers every now and then would, or professors would say, hey, um, you've got to attend this mandatory speaker that's coming to campus, and it's this two-hour session, and to get a grade in the class, you have to go to this thing. And I just remember sitting through countless ones of these things, and you're just like, why am I here? Like, this is not relevant to me. I don't want to be here. This is boring. I could be doing something productive or just doing something that's not this. This is a giant waste of time. So we have things like that all, o- all over the place, but sometimes it's bigger than that, right? Sometimes it's not just a moment of wasted time, it's a season that you feel like you're just wasting your time. You're like, I would rather be doing something else. I should be doing something else. And if you're honest, some of you feel that now. You're like, why am I in school right now? This is ridiculous. I would rather just go ahead and be working a job or doing something else. Or maybe you're like, I didn't even want to be at this school, in this place. I didn't get into where I was trying to go. It didn't work out the path I was trying to go. And so I would rather be somewhere else. Or maybe you just see this season as a stepping stone season to get somewhere else. But regardless, you have this this sense within you that's like, I'm disappointed because I don't want to be here or I'm frustrated because I don't want to be here, or I'm fearful because I don't want to be here. I feel like I'm just wasting my time. I have a greater purpose in another place. Now, here's why I tell you this. It's tonight we're continuing in the book of Philippians, which we told you last proximity is a letter written by the apostle Paul. And the apostle Paul is this great missionary, this great evangelist, this great church planner that would go from place to place, would proclaim the gospel, people would come to know Jesus, and he would start and plant the the first churches in the areas, and then he would move on to the next place. He was kind of a serial church planner, and that's in his DNA. That's what he did. That's what he loved to do. That's what he was good at it. And he had this specific desire to go to Rome because in Rome he knew that if he could win people for Christ in Rome, it would explode across the world because that was a hub there. And and if the gospel could penetrate Rome, it would greatly advance the kingdom. And so as he's planning all these churches, he's going to different places, he actually finds himself in Rome when he's writing this letter, but the hangup is he's imprisoned that he's under a sort of house arrest, that he might quite literally be chained to another person in, under this house arrest. So he's in Rome where he would want to be out proclaiming the gospel, out talking to people, preaching, yet he's found himself arrested and imprisoned. And this letter comes from the church at Philippi, and we know that uh, the church is a church that Paul had started And they cared for Paul. We read that in the first verses of Philippians. They had a deep affection for Paul. He had a deep affection for them. And they sent a man named Epaphroditus to go and care for him while he was in prison because they had this deep love. And he writes this letter back. And I can tell you what I think we would expect is for Paul to be pouting a little bit, right? 
Like this great missionary who's got this great passion and desire and skill for spreading the gospel is chained up and stuck in a house. And so you would expect him to be disappointed, to be frustrated, to be questioning, God, why am I here? You're wasting my potential here. You're wasting all that could be done for your kingdom because I'm chained up in this house. Lord, why? But what we find and what we'll see tonight in the verses is this is not Paul's attitude at all. And so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to walk through Philippians 1, uh, verses 12 through 30, through the end of the chapter, and we're going to kind of piece it apart verse by verse, but I want to go ahead and give you our big idea that we're going to kind of circle around the entire night. And the big idea is this, gospel perspective leads to gospel proclamation. Gospel perspective leads to gospel proclamation. We're going to see that all throughout the text. But what's happening here in these verses, Paul, we've said, has a mutual love with this church, and he knows that they're going to be concerned for him, and so he's going to write these verses, and he's going to encourage them and address the the concern that they have for him. And so let's start off just reading, uh, we'll pick up just first in verse 12. It says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. You hear the the personal nature in in Paul's voice. He says, hey, I want you to understand. I know you're concerned for me right now because I'm imprisoned and potentially even facing death, but I need you to understand that this has served to advance the gospel. See, Paul, this great missionary, had a gospel mindset. He, He wants them to understand that though he's imprisoned, He's truly resting into the sovereign hands of a good God who's given purpose to his life. So even in this moment, in this imprisonment, God has a purpose and a plan for him, and this is served to advance the gospel. And if you were with us a a couple of weeks ago, you know that word gospel means good news. It was a word that was used to herald the birth of a king, to announce a new king had been born and had become synonymous with the gospel, the good news of Jesus. That the world was in darkness, in brokenness, in sin, deserving of judgment and wrath from God, far from God, enemies of God, but God, rich in mercy, full of love, stepped down into his creation He sent Jesus. Jesus lived perfectly, died sacrificially, and then arose victoriously. And the good news of Jesus is that if you will turn from sin and trust in him, that you who were dead can be made alive. That you who are a sinner can have your sins forgiven. That you who are hopeless can have an abundance of hope. You who deserve eternal wrath from God will step into an eternal life with him as a reconciled child of God. This is the good news of Jesus. And what Paul says, this gospel that he's so famous for proclaiming, he says, my imprisonment has served to advance the gospel. See, they they imprisoned him in hopes to keep the gospel from going forth, but he says, it's actually the thing that's served to advance this gospel. There is a gospel purpose. He goes on in verse 13, it says, brothers, or excuse me, it says, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. You catch that? See, they imprisoned him thinking, okay, we can't have this guy going around preaching 
It says in scripture that when he would go to a place, it would turn the whole place upside down so that we can't have him going out and proclaiming the gospel. So I know what we'll do. We're gonna imprison him, arrest him, and chain him. But what Paul says is, you didn't just lock me here. You locked someone in here with me. Like, he's trapped with me. He's got to sit here and listen to me talk. And so the irony is you kept me from speaking, or so you thought, but the reality is you gave me an open door, an open window to speak and proclaim to the most powerful people in Rome, to the leaders in the Roman Empire, that these guards were potentially the guards of Caesar. And so as they're chained, maybe even chained to Paul, they're listening to him preach. They're listening to him spread the gospel. They're watching how he lives. They're talking and interacting with him. And what's happening is these hard hearts who are cold to the gospel become soft and warm and receptive. They receive the gospel word. They respond to it with conviction and with belief. And we see people become followers of Jesus and then they go and they tell their friends and they tell their friends and then what you see is the gospels infiltrating the ranks of Caesar and all of these powerful leaders in Rome. So it's not how Paul would have imagined it playing out. He probably thought he'd go and just proclaim the gospel in Rome like he did in all these other places. But now, instead of doing that, he's actually proclaiming to influential people with power, and the gospel is going further than it ever would have had he had been out and proclaiming in the streets. See, there's a purpose to what's happening. And then what he says in verse 14, and, and most, of the gospel, or most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. See, these other Christians, other believers who watched Paul's imprisonment, they were once afraid. They once had a fear, a timidity about them. They were not speaking out and being bold and proclaiming the gospel and spreading the gospel. And yet when they see Paul, who's in prison for sharing the gospel, they see him staring down the Roman guards and yet boldly proclaiming the gospel to them as they see these hard hearts melt and become followers of Jesus, it starts a fire within them, a passion within them, saying, I wanna see others come to Christ. If even the Roman guard can come to Jesus, then there's nothing that's impossible. And this emboldens them to proclaim the gospel in their areas. See, a gospel perspective leads to gospel proclamation. If Paul had had any other perspective, he would have had a woe is me, I'm imprisoned, what's going on? He would have been disappointed and frustrated. But Paul had a gospel perspective. It led him to proclaim the gospel. And then his gospel perspective, him proclaiming the gospel, led others to have a gospel perspective, which led them to proclaim the gospel. You see what happens there. A gospel perspective leads to gospel proclamation. And so I want to ask you this. Do you see your current situation as a mistake? Do you see your current situation as just a passing through season that you're just ready to get to another place or would rather be somewhere else? Or do you see it as a sovereignly ordained moment that God has placed you in with intentionality for the purpose of advancing his kingdom? I can tell you there are no mistakes in God's economy. 
He's got you exactly where he wants you. You might not be where you will one day end up, but he's got you right here in this season, in this moment with these people for a purpose. It's no mistake. It is God-ordained, and it's for the purpose of advancing his kingdom and glorifying his name. He goes on in, in the next few verses. and says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So what, what you have here is you have these other preachers, pastors, leaders who see Paul's imprisonment, and some of them recognize, hey, he was placed there by God. For what? The defense of the gospel. That there's, they see that, they have compassion for that, and they continue to preach Christ as Paul's in prison because they see there's a bigger thing happening. There's something bigger in play here. But it's not so with everyone. There are some who are rivals to Paul, and they're antagonizing Paul, that because of their own selfish ambition, potentially some jealousy in their hearts, they are ridiculing Paul. And these so-called believers are trashing him while preaching the gospel. But, but catch this, Paul says, hey, the gospel's being proclaimed, I'm good. He says, I'm good with that, I'm gonna rejoice in that, why? because he's got a gospel perspective, and all he cares about the gospel being proclaimed. All he cares about is the advancement of this gospel. That brings him joy. Now, I wanna be clear. This is not him saying, hey, false teachers, it's fine, so long as gospel's preached, right? No, what he's saying here is, is they're preaching a true gospel, they're just doing it from selfish motives. This isn't them distorting and twisting and preaching a false gospel, because Paul opposes that with, with great passion. But with this, they're boldly proclaiming, or they're proclaiming the gospel, it's just from ulterior motives, and he's like, you know what, the gospel's being proclaimed, and I'm good with that. They're slandering me while they do it, and that's gonna create a weird picture for those that see him, but you know what, Christ is being proclaimed, and that's, that's what matters. And so I gotta ask you, do you care more about your reputation or Christ's reputation? See, Paul here, his goal is Christ's exaltation even at the cost of his humiliation. His goal is Christ's exaltation even at the cost of his own humiliation. He doesn't even care if, if the gospel's being advanced and it takes his name being slandered to do so, he's like, I'm good, I'm on board with that because it's that important. He's gripped by this gospel. And we see why in the next verses, in verse 19, and these are some, some powerful verses that you've heard before. He says, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If, I'm able, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. 
Yet which will I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Jesus Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So Paul, he sees his, his situation and he's, he knows they're concerned about him because he's potentially facing death. He's like, hey, don't worry about me. Don't worry about me if, if I do end up dying. Because what he says is, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, we don't specifically know what he means when he says deliverance. There's a bit of ambiguity. It could be his deliverance from his chains, from his imprisonment, that he's able to go free and continue preaching. Or it could be his ultimate deliverance, that even if death comes for him, even if he's executed, he knows that that is freedom because of Christ. And he says, either way, whichever happens, Christ is going to be honored. And then he says the famous line that, again, you've probably heard before, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And what's interesting is in the original language, the word is is not in there. And it adds some emphasis. For me to live, Christ. For me to die, gain. That his life is tied up and bound and tethered to Christ. That Christ shapes his mind, his words, his actions, his desires, his affections, his purpose, his goals for me to live Christ. That I know that if I am to live and I'm continue to serving him, because that's my desire, that's my passion, that's what I long to do, that there will be fruit from my labor just like you are. That the Lord will bless that, and I, I trust that. For me to live Christ, that's good. But he says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. That I'm torn on what I really want here. Because for me to live Christ, yes, but to die, gain. To die is actually profitable for me. That to, to die is to leave this broken world and the pain and to be with the object of my affections and my desires is to be with Christ in glory. To find joy unimaginable and uninhibited, to find full peace and security. To, to die is gain. And so he's torn on, on the affections, on what, what he wants here. Now, I want to be clear, this is not him calling for a fatalistic approach at life, like, well, to die is gain, I'm just going to do whatever I want. Um, some of y'all might remember Julia, she used to work here, she um, got married and, and moved away, but she did some female discipleship for college and students, um, and she was working here one day, and it was just her and like one other person down on this side of the building, and these two guys that she did not know, had never met, never seen, kind of showed up at the door, and she just let them in. And they were just playing basketball. And we went to Julia and we're like, hey, who's that on the court? And she's like, oh, they're just two random guys. And we're like, you don't know them? They're like, she's like, no, they just wanted to come in. So I let them in. We're like, Julia, that's not okay. That for two reasons. One, you're over here with just one other person and that's dangerous for you. Two, we've got a weekday preschool with a bunch of kids here. You can't just be letting strangers stroll up in the building. It, it doesn't work that. And she goes, huh, well, to die's gain anyways, right? <laughs> like, Julia, no, that's not, that's not what it's about. That's not what he's saying here. 
It's not meant to lead to a fatalistic approach, but it is meant to give you boldness. To say, if the worst thing that can happen to me is actually gonna lead me to the best thing that can happen to me, I can walk through life fearless. I can walk through life with, with no fear of when I preach this gospel, people opposing me and what may happen to me because I know that even if they do oppose me and even if it leads me to death like it has some, to die is gain because I'm with the Lord. It leads you to a boldness. See, gripping to this truth, gripping to, to live Christ, to die gain, is what gives you a gospel perspective and that will lead you to gospel proclamation. And so I'm gonna ask you, do you have this kind of confidence? Like, are you able to stand with sureness and say, to die is gain? You see, without Christ, death is frightful. You don't know what's next, and, and if it is next, like in the verses we read earlier, the sting of death is sin. But the hope in the verses we read earlier is that Christ has conquered sin. Christ has arisen victoriously. And so death has no sting for the believer because sin has been taken care of. I love the way that Stephen Lawless says it. He says, the grave is not sovereign, but only a servant to bring us to Christ. Do you find comfort in those words? Because in Christ you should. And that should embolden you and, and give a passion within you to boldly proclaim his gospel. And then he, at the end, says, hey, I'm confident I'm going to come back. And when I return, it's going to lead to the glory of Christ because you're going to be excited to see how Christ has rescued me and delivered me. And then the last verses, verses 27 through 30, it says this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So he begins saying, hey, live a, a manner of life worthy of the gospel. That phrase, manner of life, is actually interesting. It's more literally, be a citizen worthy of the gospel. Remember I told you last time that the city of Philippi, this area is, uh, had an incredibly nationalistic allegiance to Rome. Like they're called Little Rome. They're citizens of the Roman Empire and it's a proud thing. And Paul reminds them, he says, hey, no, you're not just citizens of Rome. You're citizens, your true citizenship is in heaven. You're a citizen in the kingdom of God. And so live worthy as a citizen of, of God, as a citizen of his kingdom, live worthy of the gospel. Now what he's not saying is strive to be worthy, strive to, to prove your worth, strive to try to become a citizen. No, what he's saying is because you have worth in Christ, 
Because you are a citizen, because you're already approved by God, live like it. Live worthy of the calling that you have. Live worthy of the gospel that has reconciled you and given you a new identity, a new citizenship. Live with the gospel impacting your day-to-day lives. Live in allegiance to the true king, King Jesus. And he says, and whether I'm able to come or not, if I escape this and get to come see you, or if I'm not able to, I am excited to hear the report of you that you are unified, that you are, there's a oneness about you, that you're standing firm together, unmoved by the attacks of the enemy, unmoved by circumstances, that you are striving side by side, you're locking arms and marching together with one purpose and one passion, that's to advance the kingdom of God at all costs, that you're striving together in community. Because here's what you need to understand, is the gospel perspective leads to a gospel community. That the gospel is a community cultivating experience. There's no lone ranger Christian. You are saved to God and saved to a people, and it's in that community where you have this gospel perspective together that you're gonna find the confidence and encouragement and the passion to proclaim the gospel together. This is not just something you're supposed to do alone. It's meant to be in community, the community of a local body rallying together, all with one purpose under one head, and that is Christ. And then at the end, it it starts getting a little weird because so far it's been a lot of encouragement, a lot of positivity, and then he throws in words like, don't be frightened, there's opponents, there's suffering, there's conflict. And you're like, wait a minute, what's going on? Because what he's saying is, hey, by the way, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be incredibly difficult. He's telling there's going to be opposition. That just like I'm opposed And you know, Paul's opposed to the point where he's in prison and facing death. Just like that, you're going to be opposed. And you're like, why is he doing this? He's going to scare them off. But here's the thing, he's not trying to scare them. He's trying to encourage them. He's trying to comfort them. So I think sometimes we can oversell something and it actually has damages down the road. You see this with uh, jobs and people recruiting employees. I think back to when I was in college, our freshman year, the football team was new and we were gonna do a practice season and and then start playing the year after that. And I remember the recruiting process, they really oversold everything. Like in the recruiting process, they're like, you're gonna come and we're gonna build this epic stadium and the turf is gonna have this air conditioning underneath it so it's not even gonna be hot. You're gonna get a full on breakfast bar every morning. Um, You're gonna get all this gear. You, because you're freshman, you're gonna have chance to play early, unlike you would other places, and they promise and promise and promise, and, and some of it was true, some of it was stretched, some of it never happened, and what happened is we got into that practice year where it was like a year of nothing but wake up early, work out, watch film, practice, wash, rinse, repeat every single day, and we started with, I think it was about 117 freshmen, and once we got through the freshman, or the freshman practice year, and then by the time my senior year came, I think we had about 40 of us in my class still left. See, what happened to a lot of them is they came in thinking, oh, this is gonna be easy, this is gonna be great. They bought the hype of of them overselling it, but then when they found it was hard and it was just difficult and painful and it didn't shape out the way they thought, they backed out, they bailed. It wasn't worth it to them anymore. 
for, for those that stayed, we saw that it was worth it to fight through those things, but they had been overpromised, and so they bailed. I think Paul's trying to prevent that here. He's not going to say, hey, go advance the gospel, and everyone's going to come to know Jesus, and it's going to be great, and it's going to be roses, and nothing ever bad is going to happen ever. He's like, no. Proclaim the gospel. Advance the gospel. People will come to know it. There will be advancement of the kingdom of God, but you need to know there will be a lot of opposition too. Because Christ is the cornerstone, but he's a rock of offense to others. That he's a stumbling block to people. Jesus told us, he says, listen, if they hated me, of course they're gonna hate you. That you, if you are taking on my mantle and you are pursuing my kingdom and sharing my message, if they crucified me, of course they're gonna persecute you. You're gonna have opposition. But he's telling them this to encourage them and so that they can remain strong because he's saying, hey, your opposition, this suffering, it's not in vain. You are participating in the suffering of Christ. That it says it's granted to you by God. That this is intentional, this is a gift from God. So here's the thing, Jesus, when he was in the wilderness being tempted by Satan, being tempted by the enemy, he was promised a crossless kingdom. Bow down to me and all of this is yours. But Jesus knew that was not the path that he was to take. The cross came and it brought this moment of intense suffering, brought about the glory of God and the salvation of many. And when we participate in the suffering of Christ, when we proclaim his gospel, and there's opposition, what's happening is in our suffering, there is the glorification of God, the salvation of many, and what we find is like Paul, we actually grow in our joy. It's this mysterious paradox that as we suffer and as we're grieving and in pain and facing trials, our joy grows in that and we're able to rejoice in that suffering. It's actually where we're gonna find a great dependence on the Lord and find great contentment and peace and find him sustaining our very lives. And so he says, hey, participate in the advancement of this gospel because it's worth it. It's a worthy cause. And so I'm gonna ask you this question is, do you face any opposition for you, your allegiance to Christ? Do you have people and others raising up against you because you are a child of God, because you are advancing this gospel? Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying make enemies for making enemies sick. Like, I'm not saying go and just try to make everyone mad. Um, you might find you're having opposition, but it might just be because you're being a jerk. That's not suffering with Christ. That's not proclaiming his gospel and having enemies uh, because you're proclaiming the gospel. But here's the thing, Jesus promises that when we take on his mantle and we live in his way and we advance his kingdom, we will have persecution. We will have those who oppose us. And so maybe if you're not facing opposition, it could be that it's because you're not living as a citizen of the one true king. You're li living as a citizen like everyone else of this earth. Your life's not impacted by the gospel, so of course they're not rising up against you. Or maybe for others of you, your life, you're, you're living in step with it, you're pursuing righteousness, you're living in obedience as Christ has called us, but you don't face opposition because you don't ever say anything. You, you have this put my head down mentality, just kind of mind my own business, and so of course you're not getting opposition. 
But here's the thing. We are to live a life worthy of the gospel and we're to proclaim that gospel. I remember one time I was really convicted of this was I was having an exit interview with one of my coaches getting ready for the next season and he asked, he said, hey, um, what is something that you're wanting from this next season? And I knew my role was not to be a player on the field. I was gonna get in when the game was ugly and that was gonna be it. My role was a scout team player. um, So I just practiced and all that. Um, So I told him um, and, and honestly had probably a little bit of self-righteousness in my heart when I said it, I was like, you know, I just want to impact this team for Jesus, and I want to just lead by example. I just want to lead by example um, for Jesus. And he said, that's all well and good, but you've got to speak up too. And then this coach, who I don't even know honestly where he is with his relationship with Jesus, he said, listen, the most influential leader that's ever walked this earth has been Jesus, And he, yes, led by action and by example, but he also said a whole lot. You've got to be vocal. See, it's not enough just to live a life worthy of the gospel. We live worthy of the gospel and we proclaim this gospel to the ends of the earth. That's what God's called for us to do. We're driven because our life is Christ and we know that to die is gain. And this gives us a gospel perspective and this leads us to gospel proclamation. I don't know if any of you got to go to the women's conference this past weekend, but we had this, uh, this uh, person there named Megan, and she spoke, and she led worship. She also led worship last Sunday morning, um, and she used to be here uh, several years ago, um, her and her husband, and she is, she's phenomenal, phenomenal. She's an incredible person, and she just loves Jesus. Like, she just oozes Jesus. She is uh, passionate about him. She is so kind. She is so amazing. And she's impacted so many lives with the gospel, seeing so many people come to know Jesus because of how she's lived, how she's led. She's encouraged people in their love and trust of him. She actually led a college small group before we even had a college ministry here at Northway. She's amazing. And we had the opportunity, my wife and I uh, had the opportunity to sit and talk with her after the conference, uh, just in a small group. And I've known her for years, but I never heard her testimony. And so she shared it with me. And she said, you know, I grew up in a Christian home. We were at the church whenever the doors were open. But when we got into high school, I had back-to-back kind of seasons of church hurt. And this church hurt really drove a wedge between me and God. There was a distance there. And that kind of carried into college. And she said, she kind of laughed. She said, you know, it only took two philosophy classes uh, for me to become an atheist when I was in college that my heart was cold and hard to, to the truth. And I was honestly mad. She said, I was mad because I felt lied to my whole life. And she went through college with this perspective, uh, trying to honestly to fill a void within her with all these different things and nothing seemed to work. She graduated, she got a job in admissions at Mercer. And while she was at Mercer in admissions, she had some student workers working for her. Some of you might work uh, student, uh, student work, student job in admissions like them. But anyways, she had student workers working for her. And there was one guy named Davis, and she said he was the hardest worker. That he did everything to the best of his ability, and he did it with excellence. It was done well. He would always take care of things as they came up, and I wouldn't even know there was a problem until after he had already solved it. He was the best worker you could ask for. 
Everyone just loved him. He had a kindness about him that just drew people to him. And so when it came up that next year to kind of rehire, they had a re-interview, he was a shoe-in for it. And she said in the interview, uh, she would always ask people, hey, what's something I need to know about you? And so she gets through the interview with Davis, and she asks him the question, hey, what's something I need to know about you? And Davis got visibly nervous, a little anxious. His foot was shaking a little bit. And he said, what you need to know about me is I'm a follower of Jesus, and that's what I try to live my whole life for is him. And he shared the gospel with her, and then he left his interview. And she said, when he walked out, I fell to my knees. And she said, Jesus, I've been trying everything to fix this void within me, and nothing is working. But if I could just have one iota of what that kid has, Jesus, I want it. And there, after that interview, she gave her life to Christ. She began to dig into the word, dig into community. She began to follow Jesus. And then she has had an incredible ministry that the Lord has used her to touch countless lives. And and hear this, it all traces back to Davis being faithful to live a life worthy of the gospel and then to proclaim that gospel in a job interview. That because of his, his proclamation of the gospel, because God was faithful to use him, he changed her life, her eternity, and it has echoed throughout eternity with many others. And, and don't miss this. It's not like Davis was this evangelist that kind of came around and would preach in the streets. It's not like he was a pastor preaching from a stage or at a church. Now, he actually, funny enough, down the road became a pastor. But in this moment, he was just a student, working a student job. But he was a student who had his life gripped by Christ, who lived as a citizen of a different kingdom, who lived worthy of the gospel with which he had been saved. And he proclaimed that gospel faithfully. Now, it wasn't like he proclaimed it with this eloquence that was just this gripping speech. No, he was nervous and he trembled all the way through it, but he proclaimed Christ. And because Megan's heart had been primed and ready from the Holy Spirit, the Lord brought about the fruit of his labor. And can I tell you guys, this is what I want for you guys. This is what I want for you. You are college students or in that college season And what I long for you, what I want to see for you, is that you would leverage this season, this moment, for the glory of God and for the advancement of his gospel. That you would be faithful to proclaim his gospel, knowing that the weight of salvation doesn't rest on your shoulders. That God says, you just be faithful to proclaim, and I'm the one who's going to bring the fruit. And so I, I hope and I pray that you will begin to move towards others with the gospel, that you would have a gospel perspective, that you'd be gripped by the truth that to live is Christ and to die is gain, and that you would be faithful to proclaim it. And here's a good place to start. Ask yourself the question, who is chained to me? Who's chained to me? 
You see, Paul, they put him in chains, potentially even to another person, saying, hey, we're going to keep you from going out and, and spreading the gospel and telling others about Jesus. And Paul's like, hey, that's all well and good, but whoever you send a chain with me, you better send them with some earplugs because I'm sharing it with him because he's trapped here with me. He had a specific moment with a specific circumstance with a special relationship that was unique to him that he was able to proclaim the gospel and it was used to advance the kingdom of God. Here's the truth about each and one, each, each and one of you, each one of you, I can't even talk tonight, that you each have special relationships with people who are far from the Lord. You know people who do not know Jesus and you have a special opportunity, a unique opportunity that, that I wouldn't have or someone else wouldn't have or some other pastor or leader wouldn't have, it's unique to you that if you would be faithful to proclaim the gospel, it'd be amazing to watch how God uses that and blesses that for his kingdom. Pray for those around you. Pray often, Lord, give me a heart that is burdened for the lost around me. Lord, show me who you want me to move towards with your gospel. Lord, send me a person of peace, someone who is, who is warm and receptive and ready to accept and embrace your gospel, and then you step into it with boldness, knowing you don't have to be perfect. No one is. And you boldly proclaim the gospel and watch how the Lord blesses that and uses that. Here's the thing. You might feel like you're misplaced where you are. You might want to be somewhere else or, or hope that you're going somewhere else. But you need to understand there's no such thing as misplaced in God's economy. He's in, ordained this season and this moment for you. That I hope and pray that you will lean into that and leverage that for the advancing of God's kingdom. And there might be even someone in here tonight and you say, I feel just misplaced in this room, in this moment. You're like, I this is all kind of new, and I'm just kind of checking this stuff out, and I don't really know. You're talking about believers and following Jesus, and I, I honestly just don't feel like that's, that's for me. I honestly, maybe you feel some, some shame or some guilt or, or whatever it may be, and, and for you, when you think of death, you don't think profit and gain. You need to understand that this gospel is for you, that God doesn't make mistakes, you are not here by mistake. I pray that you would soften your heart to receive this good news of Jesus, that the God of the universe came and lived and died for you and rose again for you, that you would see the beauty of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the grace of God poured out that you would confess your sin and turn from your sin and you would place your trust and your hope in him and you would step into the newness of life tonight because again, this is no mistake why you're here. That's my hope and my prayer for you.